This is DWMOD. That's Disagree With Me or Don't. And as usual, I'm your host, Mikey Wilson. Hey, we got to get to it. There's a lot to cover from the last couple of weeks, guys. We're going to get to some quick hits on that NCAA tournament. Man, that was a great finish in that one. And the Final Four sparked a lot of debate about what's the greatest finish in a tournament game ever. Uh, Championship round, Final Four. We're going to quick hit on a couple of those. We'll talk a little Michigan basketball, disappointed in that UCLA outcome. But we will talk about the greatest tournament game by a Michigan player and the greatest player in the tournament for Michigan. Two separate things, guys. The trade deadline came and went for the Red Wings and the Pistons. We'll touch on that real quick. And then we're going to talk Tigers. The baseball season is upon us, and we are going to turn back the clock on what I think is one of the most fascinating uh, trades and six degrees of separation of everything wrapped around this trade as we turn back the clock and look at a great moment in Tiger history. And if you've been following us on the Twitter, guys, you know the trade I'm talking about. We teased it out when we were opening up some old packs of Topps baseball cards, and we got a couple of pitchers with Tiger ties. But let's get to it. Yes. <laughs> I'm Mikey Wilson and this is DWMOD. Yeah. Touchdown. Michael Jordan is a baby and a liar. Down. Hut. 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 Isaiah Thomas deserved to be on the dream team and Jordan kept him off it. Ready? Aw, Lions fans drinking that Kool-Aid Super Bowl. Hey, disagree with me or don't. That's how it works. Hut, hut. Quinn and Patricia are in job-saving mode. They're going to get fired this year for it, and we're screwed. Again. Don't. Now, Jim Harbaugh's supposed to be the quarterback whisperer. He can't develop any of the four- and five-star guys he's brought in. I don't get it. Hut. They're not going to put sweet Lou Whitaker in the Hall of Fame. Please. Baseball writers of America. What a bunch of old white assholes. Ready? The greatest professional wrestler ever. The macho man, Randy Savage. Yeah, because the cream of the crop will always rise to the top. Yeah. Hey, disagree with me or don't. That's how it works. Hey, welcome back, guys. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for following us on the Twitter. And a big thanks to everybody who participated in this year's 2021 March Madness NCAA Tournament Bracket Racket. A lot of you submitted brackets to the contest. And a big shout out to my man, Trevor Pitzel, who took home the trophy. That's right. Trevor Pitzel was our champion, our listeners champ. And we sent him out a giant wall-sized fathead reusable tournament bracket just like the one you saw us tweet out from the show he put this thing on the wall every year you can fill the names out boom get them all off there next year you got another blank when you put it up it's beautiful love mine use it every year it's a lot of fun congratulations trevor thanks for participating buddy thanks for listening and enjoy that thing for years to come man this was a fun tournament this time i'll tell you as ron swanson would say it was crazy The mayhem in the first round alone was crazy. You had number 13, Ohio over Virginia. Number 11, UCLA upset BYU. Number 14, Albaline Christian beat Texas, and Shaka got fired for that. Number 13, North Texas over Purdue. Number 15, Oral Roberts over over Ohio State. Now, that was a huge one there. Oral Bob goes on to the Sweet 16. We all know eventually UCLA went on to the Final Four. Let's not forget number 12, Oregon State beat Tennessee in the first round, and they cruised into the Elite Eight after being the worst team in the Pac-12, but running the table in the Pac-12 tournament, and number 11, uh, Syracuse over San Diego State. I mean, it was crazy, and everybody wanted to uh, give credit to uh, the bubble or the pandemic or whatever, you know, how the pandemic had certain areas of the country were playing and playing regularly and openly, and other places weren't playing so regularly and openly, but I mean, you could put that all on a boat and sink it because the Pac-12 wasn't, and they performed really well in the tournament, right? I mean, you can disagree with me or don't on this one, but I think this is going to become a pretty regular thing, and I think it's directly tied into uh, the one-and-done rule. You know, you got a lot of schools like Kentucky where it's it's become real posh and fancy to to go get the, the five freshmen and try to recreate that Fab Five, which nobody's really ever done yet. But they get all these guys that are going to be one and done, and these teams are put together with these kids that are going to play one year and go pro, and they're loaded with McDonald's All-Americans, and they're exciting as hell to watch, and they're beating people all season long. But come tournament time, 
you're going to have a lot more of these upsets happening because all these mid-major schools where guys aren't getting a lot of uh, attention for NBA or high draft picks, lottery guys, you got guys sticking around playing four or five and with the pandemic now, a sixth year, uh, you know, you got teams where these mid-major teams, these guys have played together for a long time. They're seniors, they're grown men, and the other kids are more talented, but they're kids. They're kids. They haven't played together, but for a season, maybe 20 games, and they may have more talent, but that doesn't mean that they, they can play basketball together better than four or five seniors from Oral Roberts or something. You know what I mean? So I just think that this is a lot deeper than it was a pandemic year and it was crazy and we hadn't had the tournament in two years and blah, blah, blah. I, I just don't think it's that. I think you're going to see a lot more of this. Disagree with me or don't, but it absolutely has to do with the one and done. And a lot of guys sticking around in these mid-majors, they're just older and veteran teams. That being said, all credit to Baylor. I mean, Baylor showed up in the Final Four and straight bombed both teams they played in the first four minutes of the game. I mean, they straight bombed Houston right out of the gates and then again against Gonzaga right out of the gates. Boom. I mean, they blasted the Zags. Uh, tip of the cap to Baylor. They came out and played. And I'm telling you, I don't ever remember watching a team get so many hands on the ball. You know what I mean? Like just hands and passing lanes, not steals on errant passes or turnovers or things like that. The defensive pressure was so tight, and I don't remember ever seeing a team get so many tip-tap balls where they were just poking it away from dribblers or just getting a fingertip on a pass, knocking it the other way. They were just extremely aggressive, man, and they took it to them. I really didn't understand uh, the odds makers and, and all the, the experts picks that Gonzaga was going to uh, show up and, and just beat Baylor, especially by, I think it was like by six, they were saying, I was just like, nah, I don't see that. I, I just, I thought that was crazy. And for Gonzaga, I mean, real good team, real fun to watch them. But let's be honest, man, uh, that team, especially with the pandemic this year, uh, they had a game against Baylor canceled earlier in the year. A lot of teams, they didn't end up playing because of scheduling and trying to social distance and blah, blah, blah. And then they only play within their conference, really. And let's face it, their conference ain't that good. So then when they got to the tournament, this is the first time they had really seen some high caliber, you know, major conference teams. And they showed up against some of them, blew them out of the gym. And then they ran into a team like UCLA and we had ourselves a barn burner and UCLA wasn't even, you know, they barely got in the tournament, had to beat Michigan State as a play in team. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about playing in deep conferences and Gonzaga just doesn't. And I think that's going to continue to hurt them in the tournament. Um, I love the Zags. Been to a game at the Kennel. Love the Kennel. Love the atmosphere up there in Spokane, man. I'm a big fan myself. I really am. But that's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt them for years to come. But let's talk about the finish of that game real quick, that UCLA and Gonzaga game. I mean, UCLA comes down, hits the bucket, and then Suggs goes all the way down the other way and launches one at the buzzer, and boom, and he nailed it. And I'm jumping off the couch. It was one of the most exciting tournament games I had ever seen. You know, and I was right on I was right on the bandwagon with everybody else on social media. Like, is this the greatest tournament finish that you've seen? Because it was so back and forth and overtime and the buzzer beater and all that. And then they quickly remind you that there are some other really great moments, man. You know, so real quick, let's just run down the, the top four of them. In my mind, the top four finishes in, in tournament history. And for me, it's got to be, you know, not no first round uh, buzzer beater. These are happen later in the tournament or championship games, something that just makes it really iconic, right? And the Sug shot wound up being like fourth on my list. So let's run that list and take it into quick hits. The top four buzzer beaters in NCAA tournament history. <laughs> Coming in fourth place, Suggs hits the buzzer beater over UCLA in the Final Four, sending Gonzaga to the championship game and a shot at an undefeated season. They'd end up falling to Baylor in a game that wouldn't even be close. So like it or not, that does make it a little less memorable. Uh, coming in at number three, Lorenzo Charles with the putback dunk on the air ball as NC State takes down by Slamma Jamma. The heavily favored Houston Cougars. We all know the clip. We've seen it a hundred times. Jimmy V hits the floor. They're dancing and celebrating. NC State comes out of nowhere. And the last second air ball would be is dunked home by Lorenzo Charles. Awesome moment. A buzzer beater to win the national title. But not the only one, as we'll get to in a minute. Number two on our list, got to be Leitner on the full court, inbound pass, turnaround jumper from the free throw line to knock Kentucky out of the tournament. 
Kentucky was the heavy favorite to win the championship that year, and that would solidify Leitner, rightfully so, going down in history as probably the greatest college basketball player that we ever saw. I mean, if not the best, he's easily in the top five. And you could disagree with me or don't, but he absolutely deserved to be on Team USA, the dream team in 1992. And if you don't think he did, you're wrong. And that takes us to the number one buzzer beater in tournament history. And this is an easy one, guys. I mean, this is the championship game, Nova over the Tar Heels, 2016 national championship game. And in the last minute of this thing, I mean, shots are just bombing and dropping from everywhere. North Carolina comes back and Page hits the craziest three-point shot you've seen for North Carolina. He goes up, guy jumps to block it. He swirls the ball around. I mean, you could check this thing out online. I can't even describe it properly. He's in midair. Just throw, he throws up a prayer, and it goes in. And North Carolina ties the game, and Villanova comes right back down 4.7 seconds, and Chris Jenkins drills the buzzer beater to win the game. I mean, that's absolutely number one on our list. Check out the highlights on that, and I think you will agree with me on this one and that's the ncaa tournament buzzer beater top four it's a fun tournament it's a fun tournament this year and let's jump into a little michigan basketball as promised uh juan howard first year with the team coach of the year takes him on a good run and they ultimately fell short to you know hot ucla team uh, but you can't even really give it up to being a hot ucla team i mean that was an ugly basketball game guys both ways and wagner was on the milk carton I don't know where he was during that whole game, but it was an ugly game, and that's what UCLA wanted, and normally that would have benefited Michigan. Michigan liked ugly wins this year. You know, they'd play you like that, but I think think the funny stat there was like neither team hit a bucket in the last five minutes of the game or something like that. It was crazy. Just nobody could score in the last few minutes. Everything was rolling out. Nothing was falling. All free throw points down the stretch, and Michigan just didn't have enough of them. They were really, really missing livers, and it showed down the stretch when you just you needed some buckets, man, and they just couldn't get them. But great run. They're going to be back again next year. But that sparked us to do a little research and find what is the greatest single-game performance by any Michigan Wolverine in the tournament. And you can disagree with us a don't on this one, but we're going to go with my man Trey Burke and the 2013 tournament. Matchup to send the Wolverines to the Sweet 16 against the Kansas Jayhawks, a Jayhawks team everybody thought was going to make a run to the title game that year. And they were beating Michigan by 17 points down the stretch late in the game. Now, Michigan kept battling in that game. They kept battling, and they had cut the Jayhawks' lead to eight points with a minute to go. Enter Trey Burke. He bombs a big three to cut it to five points. But Kansas is good from the stripe, and we're going to have to start fouling. So you really don't have that good feeling in your tummy just yet. The Wolverines keep trading buckets for fouls, and the Jayhawks keep turning them fouls into free throw points, and the lead stays five. The lead stays five up until 17 seconds left in the game. Once again, enter Trey Burke. Savvy, smart play here. He gets the inbound, and he just quickly goes coast to coast for a quick two-point bucket. He's not trying to bomb up a three. He goes right to the rack, takes the two that they give him. Now the lead's cut to three. There's 11 seconds left in the game. Michigan's got no timeouts, and they got a foul. Kansas finally misses the free throw. Michigan rebounds. They got to push it up the court. They get the ball to Trey Burke, and he spots up with four seconds left on the clock. And, I mean, he spots up. From beyond Curry land. He's not throwing up a prayer. He ain't trying to get any closer. He sees that he's got a little gap between him and the defense. And my man spots up from way downtown and lets it fly. And it's pure. It's just pure. It's true. Bam. You knew it was in the minute it left his hand. They, and I'm by they I mean Trey Burke, cut a double-digit deficit in the second half against Kansas. They had an eight-point lead with a minute to go, the Jayhawks did. Trey Burke cut that. He bombs a 900-footer at the buzzer, spotting up to send it to overtime. And go ahead and check this thing out online, guys. It'll take you about two minutes because in the overtime period, my man just keeps bombing from like 40 feet away like it's nothing. I mean, he's drilling them like it's his business. Michigan ends up winning the game, and it's by far, go ahead and check that out on YouTube, guys, by far the greatest single-game performance by a Michigan Wolverine in the tournament. It 
still will have you on the edge of your seat watching the replay and you know what's coming. And we all know what happened the rest of that tournament. We went on to play Florida in the lead eight, bombed them by 20, and then we beat Syracuse in the final four, free throws down the stretch, Trey Burke. And I want to bring up one more thing that I want you to go on YouTube and watch. In the national championship game that year against Louisville, there's about five minutes left, and this game is back and forth. Both teams looking to try to grab some momentum, and it's a very close game with about five minutes left. Trey Burke has probably the greatest block by a guard in the history of the tournament, and they blow him for the foul. And everybody, including the announcers calling the game, are like, oh, my God. They go back and look at the replay, and this thing is as clean as it comes. He gets him from behind, you know, catches up to him. You didn't see him coming. He pins it to the glass. I mean, it's a la Tayshaun Prince uh, against Reggie Miller. I mean, it's the greatest block by a guard probably in tournament history and a clutch moment like that. It's phenomenal. But we end up losing that game, and Dirty Rick Patino goes on to win the title with Louisville. And you can disagree with me or don't on this one, but Rick Patino has violated more NCAA rules than any player ever in the history of the game, and this guy gets to continue to coach. I mean, sidebar here, and we'll get into it on another episode, but they got to start doing something about these coaches that just keep getting nailed doing dirty shit, and it's the university and the players that pay for it, and they just walk away from this university, and, and that university's out of the tournament for the next bunch of years. Guys lose their scholarships, and all kind of you know destruction lays in their wake, and they just walk into another school and start coaching. I mean, they got to start doing something about banning these guys for life, and they should start with Rick Pitino. I mean, we go after the players hardcore when something happens like this. We'll go after the players. We'll strip Reggie Bush of all his Heismans and everything, and we'll shame him in the public eye for for trying to get you know a, a house for his mom. But then any one of these coaches can just walk to another school and start coaching again. We never talk about them. I think it's ridiculous. They got to start holding these guys accountable. But back to Michigan basketball, guys. And, of course, if we're going to talk about the greatest tournament performance as a whole by any Michigan player, it's, I mean, you guessed it, it's easily Glenn Rice. He had the greatest tournament of any player ever in the history of the NCAA tournament. Nobody's ever scored more points in the tournament than Glenn Rice did on his way to the 1989 National Championship. Going into the tournament in 1989, he's the Big Ten Player of the Year, uh, one of the best players in the nation, hands down. He's averaging 25.6 points a game, and he shot 53% from the three-point line. That's for the season. That's for the season in the Big Ten where they play defense. 53% from the three-point line, guys. So what does he do to trump that in the NCAA tournament? First round against Xavier, 23 points. Next round against Southern Alabama, 36 points. Next round against UNC, North Carolina, 34 points where he shot 13 of 19. He missed six shots in the whole damn game. Next game uh, against uh, uh, Virginia, 32 points. He only misses three shots in that game against Virginia. 32 points, he only misses three times in that game. Final four, of course, against Illinois, he sc- he drops 28 on the Illini. And in a championship game against Seton Hall, 31 points for a total of 184 points in the tournament. Still stands as the record. And what did he shoot from the three-point line in the NCAA tournament during that stretch? 57% from three-point in the the tournament. I mean, it's ridiculous what Glenn Rice did in 1989. He's the ultimate Wolverine. No one will ever top that. I'd say disagree with me or don't, but nobody will because you can't. All right, guys, before we move on to talking trade deadline for the Pistons and the Red Wings, let's take a minute to talk about delicious beverages and snacks. The NBA and the NHL season is heating up coming down the stretch. The Tigers just kicked off. Baseball has started. A lot of young, exciting players in Major League Baseball this year. You're going to be watching a lot of sports, guys. You're going to be watching a lot of sports, so don't be stupid. Next time you're at the store, stock up on some Fago and some Better Made Chips. Get whatever flavor you like, man. Get that Rock and Rye. Get that Peach. Get that Fago Red Pop, Grape, whatever. Get you some Better Maids. I love the Wavy. Go ahead and get you regular plain, but everybody knows that the barbecue, the barbecue is the Better Made staple. Somebody put together a hilarious little meme on the internet, and it was a clip of uh, Jared Goff after they had just beat the Saints to go to the Super Bowl. And he was just like rubbing his sweaty head and going, wow, unbelievable, unbelievable. And somebody captioned it, Jared Goff after his first bag of Better Maids and a Fago Red Pop. And that's hilarious to me. That's hilarious to me because as soon as he gets to town, that's exactly what he needs to get. So stock the fridge up with that stuff, guys. A lot of sports to be watched. And if you need to turn it up a notch 
And especially if you're out on the West Coast like me, and a lot of these 1 o'clock starts are really 10 o'clock starts for you out here, so it's early in the morning, you have to get the official beer of the DWMOD podcast, and that's Old English 800. Because you mix that with a splash of orange juice and let everybody else have their mimosas and get their heartburn or dive deep into the Bloody Marys and be bombed by 1130 and ruin the rest of their day. No, not me. Getting some Old English 800, mixing that with a good splash of orange juice, rocking myself a brass monkey, enjoying sports for the rest of the day. So go ahead and go get some, guys. Old English 800, the official beer of the DWMOD podcast. Now let's talk about that trade deadline for the NBA and the Detroit Pistons. The only move we made right at the deadline is uh, we moved the line right to Sacramento. And what did we get for that? We got Corey Joseph and we got the Lakers 2021 second round pick and the Sacramento Kings 2024 second round pick so we'll see what we can do with that but you know what draft picks are like in the nba i talked about that last episode they're pretty much worthless especially second round picks i mean it's a diamond in the rough you find a guy there but what's the matter because we pretty much turned over the whole roster this year you take a look at the roster from the beginning of the season for the pistons and where we're at right now we've just about flipped the whole roster and i mean honestly guys it's sad because what does it matter we're sitting at 17 and 40, and the only two teams worse than us in the league right now are the Houston Rockets uh, after the departure of Harden and anybody else and uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. And I'll tell you what, it's going to be a barn burner to see which one of us three winds up with the most balls in the bag for that lottery. So I guess there's something to be excited about, but I just don't see the NBA letting the Pistons ball come out of the bag for the number one pick. I just don't see that happening, man. I'll make a bold prediction right here on the show. Um, the NBA has been dying for Chicago to be relevant for a long, long time right now. And if Chicago can lose a few games down the stretch here, they're going to be in the mix in that bag for like, if you really pulled the balls out of the bag, honestly, for like maybe the fifth or sixth pick, I will not be surprised to see the Chicago Bulls wind up with that number one pick. They need to get a competitive team in Chicago with the way the market is. And I don't know, I'll make a bold prediction right now. I think the Bulls will wind up with the number one pick and they will not have the most balls in that bag. But that's about all we got on the Pistons right now, guys. There ain't much to watch and much to be excited about. But we love them. We love them anyway, and we're hoping we get that number one pick and maybe we'll grab somebody like Suggs and we'll be able to build around him and it'll get exciting in Detroit again because I'll tell you what, the NBA is better. The NBA is better as a whole when you got a winner in Detroit. A lot of history, a lot of fans all over the country, man. I'm telling you, Piston fans are everywhere, and it's better for the NBA when we're good. Now let's dive into the Red Wings real quick, guys, as promised. Um, I'll tell you what, it's a little bit of more of the same here, just like we were just talking about with the Pistons. It looks like the Red Wings are going to miss the playoffs again this year for sure. After being a team that made the playoffs for 25 consecutive years, we made the playoffs 25 years in a row, won multiple Stanley Cups, Earned the name Hockey Town. The wing wheel became the iconic logo in all of hockey. And it looks like we're probably going to miss the playoffs again for the fifth, sixth year now in a row. But there are silver linings here. Dylan Larkin is a great young player. He's wearing the C now. Steve Eiserman is back. He's in the front office. We all know what he did down in Tampa Bay. Stanley Cups put that thing together. We know what he's capable of doing. And big Stevie Y making a big move at the deadline. The Red Wings made a deal with the first-place team in the East, um, Washington Capitals. Capitals are looking to try and make another deep run. Ovechkin's getting a little long in the tooth, and they think they got a window to win another cup. So we go ahead and we trade them Anthony Mantha, a first-round pick from 2013. He's only 26 years old, and his contract with us was for four years at about $5.7 million uh, cap hit. And... He's only got 21 points this year, guys. He's got 11 goals and 10 assists, but that's on a bad team. So, you know, I mean, the Capitals can see that. This guy's a good player. He's a young player, and they think he's on a deal that's pretty good for them moving forward. So, you know, end of the day, this guy's got 200 points and 300 career games. That's pretty good. But we move him to the Capitals, and here's what we get. We get forward uh, Jakob Rana, and we get forward Richard Panik as well as the Capitals' 2021 first-round pick and their 2022 second-round pick. And unlike basketball, you can really hit in the draft in the NHL, especially in the first two rounds. So, you know, that's a good deal for us. And let's look at the players real quick. The better of the two players is Vrana. He's a first-round pick from 2014, just a year after Mantha, which makes it obvious and stands the reason that he's one year younger 
than Mantha. And he's got 11 goals on a season, 14 assists, 25 points, but that's on a good team. The puck's getting spread around all over the place. And he's a restricted free agent after this season. So he's a 3.3 hit right now, 3.3 million, but he's restricted free agent after the season. So I will fully expect Steve Eiserman to sign this guy to a deal that will probably be along the same length of what we traded away from Mantha. So we'll get into basically uh, an upgraded player on about the same level as Mantha that will be younger and will have on a little cheaper deal for a few more years. So this is a great move by Steve Eiserman. And the other player, uh, the other player in this trade, uh, Richard Penny, uh, he's 30 years old. Uh, he's only got nine points. He's a third liner. He's kind of a throw in on the trade here. And, you know, he's only like $2.4 million. And then he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. So we can let this guy walk. But these are the kind of things that you're excited about that Steve Eiserman is going to do. You can see what he's doing. He's trying to build a young team of pieces that fit, not flashy star power, pieces that fit, guys that can play, get them on some good money deals, get them happy, get them in that wing wheel, and get the wing wheel rolling behind Larkin here. I'm excited about what's going to be happening with the Red Wings here coming up soon. I am. I think Steve Eiserman's on to something. This was a big deal, and he nailed it. And good luck to Mantha uh, over there with the Capitals. And, you know, I wish him well. I'd like to see Ovechkin win another cup. I think the guy is one of the most fun hockey players I've ever seen in my lifetime. And he's a guy that's got a legitimate shot, well, outside shot, at catching Wayne Gretzky in goals. And that's a record that everybody feels like no one could ever, ever, ever get close to. And if you take a quick look at his numbers and what he's been able to do and what athletes are doing now in pro sports at 36, 37, 38, 39 years old, it's not crazy to think that he could have a couple more good years in him and get real close to Gretzky's goal record, especially if he hangs around long enough like like Yammer Yager has recently just done. So keep an eye on that. That'll be fun to watch. Now let's get to talking about what we're all excited about every year in Detroit come April, and it's the Detroit Tigers, man. Detroit is known as Hockey Town. That's true. And, and if you talk to a lot of sports fans around the city, they'll tell you this is a football town. Look how diehard we all are drinking the Kool-Aid for the Lions, and they're the worst franchise in the history of pro sports. I mean, on paper, you look at it, and it's hard to argue that they're not, you know. I mean, I just saw a stat the other day that showed since the NFL has moved to a 16-game regular season, that's known as the 16-game era from 1978 to 2020, we are – the worst team in winning percentage in that era. The Lions have a .396 winning percentage. We're 268, 410, and two ties. I mean, we're worse than the Browns. We're worse than the Buccaneers, who just won the Super Bowl. But we're worse than the Cardinals, the Jags. I mean, yeah, it's bad. But my point there is we still love them, man. We still love them. We drink the Kool-Aid. We show up. And a lot of people will tell you this is a football town. But I'm telling you what, man, when you dig into it, this is a baseball town. This is a baseball town. Comerica Park will be full of people no matter what. And when we were on World Series runs, you know, just 10 years ago, not even 10 years ago, six, seven years ago when we were, you know, we were in it every year, um, Comerica Park was rocking, man. And this is a baseball town. So we're excited. It's April. We've got the new look Tigers. A.J. Hinch, we got the new manager bringing in some, you know, young blood. Guy knows a thing or two about winning. And you can say whatever you want about how they were winning but you know what guy knows a thing or two about winning and we just went down to houston and they couldn't pull all their tricks i guess because aj knew them. we went down there and swept them put the brooms out on the astros no doubt about it tigers looking decent you know we're not expecting this city's gonna go nuts if we're close to 500 this year if this team's playing close to 500 baseball that's exciting and we're gonna love it and right now they're they're hovering right around that mark uh, we got some exciting things going on. You've all been watching Akil Badu. I mean, this this rookie, I mean, he looks really good, really good right out of the gates, and he's somebody that you can't help but root for this guy. I mean, he's a guy that fell through the cracks. Nobody's really giving him a shot, and he makes the team in spring training, and he comes up here with us, and you see him in the interviews after the game, and I'm telling you, I, you know, I tweeted it out from the show and I felt this to be true. When I'm sitting there listening to him giving his uh, you know, uh, interviews after the game, after he's getting big home runs and grand slams and all kind of stuff, he reminds me a lot of my favorite Tiger, one of my favorite Tigers of all time, Curtis Granderson. He just really does, man. He's a really humble, likable dude, and he's smiling the whole time. You can tell he's having fun, 
and he's fun to watch, man. It just reminds me a lot of Curtis Granderson, and I'm having fun watching him. On that note, I also want everybody to cease and desist with all the yabba-dabba-doo. I mean, come on, man. That's what we're doing right now. We're going to coin this guy with yabba-dabba-doo. I'm sure he probably hates that. It's lazy. Everybody's, you know, ridiculous uncle from the Christmas party made that same joke at the same minute when they first saw his name. We're better than that. He deserves better than that. Knock it off with the yabba-dabba-doo, and let's come up with something better for the kid. Another rookie, another rookie, though, that's been fun to watch has been Mize. He's had some really good starts. Uh, his last start uh, against Oakland wasn't the greatest, but it wasn't bad. I mean, this kid's been pitching pretty well, man. He's been fun to watch. And Boyd's had a couple good outings, too. So at the top of the rotation here, we've got a couple of guys that can win games. Ramos has been knocking the ball out of the park like nobody thought he was going to. I mean, he's hitting the long ball like crazy. And out of the catcher position, I mean, that helps you anytime. <laughs> Candelario is a guy that we really expected big things out of this year, and he's, he's living up to that he's hovering around 300 he's hitting well and he's playing pretty good coming into the season we were expecting to get a little bit more out of scoop and he just hasn't shown it yet but maybe he'll come on maybe he'll come on and castro as well we were really excited about castro last year guys right because we watched the guy we watched the kid come up and hit 345 now it's a small sample size in a shortened pandemic season but we watched the guy hit 345 and play pretty good defense pretty excited about this kid but he's off to a pretty cold start right now so Maybe he'll shuffle him around. Maybe AJ will shuffle him around in the lineup a bit and find him a spot where he can settle in and be comfortable. But he's got a lot of potential. Ceiling's pretty high with that kid. Now, we all know the big name in town, the big cat, is, is Miggy. And he's on the DL again, but he's going to come back. They say it's not too serious. But that, what about that opening day home run, man? That Have you ever seen a player in your life push the ball the other way so effortlessly the way Miguel Cabrera does? I mean, the guy just swings right through the ball on the outside of the plate and just hits it the other way. It's like you see other guys with they'll do really good piece of hitting by pushing that ball into right field, but you can see when how you know they'll adjust their swing and the commentators will tell you, oh, you see him adjust the swing there, a great piece of hitting. You push the ball to the right field. It doesn't even look like that when Miguel Cabrera does it. It just looks like he takes a full swing at the right time, right through the ball on the outside of the plate and pushes it right out of the park. I mean, you can disagree with me or don't if you want on this one, but he's hands down the greatest right-handed hitter of this generation. I mean, did you ever think you'd see a guy in the modern era win the Triple Crown? And this guy would have done it back-to-back -back if it wasn't for Juice in Baltimore. You know what I mean? I mean, come on. Chris Davis hit an astronomical amount of home runs for a guy like him in that season. But anyway, the point is, Miguel Cabrera almost wins a Triple Crown back-to-back. -back. I mean, this is a guy that's – he's the greatest right-handed hitter of his generation, and it's not even close. And that's going to be the fun part of this season is because there's a couple of huge milestones coming up this year for Miggy, and he could possibly do them both in the same season, which is pretty rare, and he's going to do them in English D. And that's getting to 500 home runs. He only needs 11 more home runs to get the 500 home runs, guys. We all fully expect that to probably happen this season. And he needs 133 hits to get the 3,000 hits. That's going to be a little taller order. If he can stay off the DL, I think he can get to that 133 hits. But to get the 3,000 hits and 500 home runs in the same season would be really cool. But just to hit those two marks, I mean, there's only six other players in the history of the game who have ever, ever done that. And we're talking about Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, A-Rod, Albert Pujols, who just did it, and Eddie Murray, the greatest switch hitter of all time. And Rafael Palmero is another guy who did it. But there's only six guys to have ever accomplished this. You know what I mean? Barry Bonds didn't do it. And I'm not going to get into a laundry list of, of guys that are considered to be the greatest hitters in the history of the game who didn't do this. But uh, they didn't. And Mickey's going to do it this year. And that's going to be pretty exciting to watch. But the baseball season is upon us. And, man, there's a lot of great young stars right now in Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball is going to be really fun this year. And, and it needs a shot in the arm. It definitely needs a shot in the arm because some of the rule changes and that aren't so much rule changes, but the way that the game has really changed uh, has dulled it up in the last, last bunch of years, man. It needs something a little more exciting. And we got a bunch of young players coming up that it's going to be fun to watch. I'm really excited about the season. And that always gets me nostalgic, man. You know, like every every year when the baseball season starts, 
I always get nostalgic. Baseball was a major part uh, of our household growing up. And any of you guys that know me and any of you guys listening, you know, from the fire department that know my dad and work with my dad, you guys know baseball is a big part of our house growing up. And we were big into the baseball cards. My dad did that for a long time with us when we were kids. So every year this time, you know, I get a little nostalgic and I start buying some baseball cards to open up and get some packs. And this week's deep dive into one of the most fascinating trades i think in major league baseball it stems from me going to the store and i bought a bunch of old packs of cards just to open up and i'm opening up some old 1984 tops and i come across doyle alexander doyle alexander at the time was pitching for the blue jays and then i was opening up some some more cards from the 90s and i get john smoltz and of course you guys saw i tweeted out we're going to talk about these two and that's the trade i'm talking about in 1987 the Detroit Tigers traded away one of their double-A prospects, a kid named John Smoltz, for a veteran pitcher at the end of his career named Doyle Alexander. Now, if you don't know anything about this, this thing should be a 30 for 30. I'm telling you right now, somebody needs to make this thing into a 30 for 30 because it is six degrees of separation that will forever link the four teams, the Tigers, the Braves, the Blue Jays, and the Twins, and would have a ripple effect on four World Series and multiple World Series trips. Okay, four championships, but even more appearances than that. And it, and, and it's a really fascinating story. And the thing that gets me about it is it's always talked about, especially among Tiger fans, and people will throw it out all the time. Of Oh, man, we traded away John Smoltz. Can you believe it? Like one of the all-time bonehead moves in the history of baseball. And that's just not the case. That's not the case at all. So when people want to argue uh, who, you know, anytime there's a trade, people want to argue who won that trade, who won that trade. And in this one, everybody always says, oh, the, the Braves fleeced us in this trade and it was bad for the Tigers and how stupid was that? And that's just not the case, guys. It's not the case at all. So sit back, listen to this thing get broken down, and then you tell me at the end if you think this was one of the all-time bad moves by the Detroit Tigers. Because the facts are, it just wasn't. Turn back the clock. Now, the year is 1987, okay? And the Braves are, are, are pretty much out of it all year all year long. I mean, they're hovering around the bottom of their division in the National League, and they're pretty much out of it all year long. The Tigers, on the other hand, uh, since winning the World Series in 1984, they're hovering around the top of the division, 85, 86, and, and again in 87, we're right there. We're in a pennant race with the Toronto Blue Jays. They're right on our heels, and the Tigers feel like we just need that one more piece to put us over the top. If we can get into the playoffs, we can get into the ALCS, we can get to another World Series, and they're really feeling the pressure to do that right now. Like I said, the window's closing. Guys are getting older. Deals are coming to an end. They think this is the year. We got to make the move. You listen to this podcast. You're a sports dude. You understand sports. That's what teams do. Now, the Tigers had been after Doyle Alexander for a while that season, okay? And the Braves were savvy because Doyle was not winning a lot of games, okay? He wasn't winning a lot of games in 1987. So the Tigers weren't offering them much in a trade deal. But the Braves knew that Alexander was pitching really well. They just had a bad team, and they knew it, and they knew that the Tigers knew it. They knew the Tigers were in it. They knew the Tigers wanted to make a run. They knew the Tigers needed a starting pitcher, and they knew from several conversations that the Tigers wanted Doyle Alexander badly to try and hold off the Toronto Blue Jays. And the Tigers keep coming back to the table with the fact that Doyle Alexander is 5-10 and 10 right now. He's 5-10 and 10 at this point in 1987, approaching the deadline. What do you want for this 5-10 and 10 pitcher? But again, the Braves know the Tigers want him, and they know he's worth more than that. Now, they want to get something for him. And here's where you got to give big-time credit to Atlanta Braves scout John Hegman. Because when they're looking for a guy to take from our farm system, John Hegman thinks he sees something special in a kid from our double-A club in Glen Falls, New York. And this kid is also pitching, ironically, on a 5-10 and 10 record. So Hegman took his thoughts straight to the Braves GM, and he tells him, I got the guy we need to get. His name is John Smoltz. He's a double-A pitcher. To which the Braves GM famously replies, who the hell is John Smoltz? And Hegman tells him, quote, Smoltz has the best arm I've ever seen on a right-hander. Now, this being a GM who's extremely smart and one of the greatest minds in the history of baseball, he's only surrounded himself with people he trusts, and he tells Hegman, let's do it. Let's go get Smoltz. Now, you remember this name. Bobby Cox. That's right. Bobby Cox is the Braves GM in 1987. Now, you probably remember him as the Braves manager, but Bobby Cox doesn't become the Braves manager and move from the GM office to the dugout until 1990. 
He spent 1986 to 1989 as the general manager for the Braves, and he wisely spent that time building himself one of the greatest teams in Major League Baseball history. The Braves under Bobby Cox would win 14 consecutive division titles, 14 consecutive division titles. That's unmatched to this day. And just to put uh, some context on the type of players that Bobby Cox is acquiring while he's in the front office, his very last order of business as GM before he moves to manager in 1990 is to make the number one overall draft pick in the 1990 Major League Baseball draft. And he chooses a kid named Chipper Jones. Now, Bobby Cox would only win one World Series during that stretch, but he went to four. And that ain't that easy to do. His 15 total division titles are the most by any manager. And he's fourth all-time in wins. He's fourth all-time in wins. But look, I'm not trying to have a love affair with Bobby Cox here, but I just found all that stuff really fascinating, and I bring it up because it all ties into this trade here. Okay, it all ties into this trade. Because do you know where Bobby Cox was in 1985 before he became the Braves GM in 1986? He was in Toronto, taking the Blue Jays to Game 7 of the ALCS, only to lose to the Royals, who went on to win it all. And do you know who Bobby Cox's best pitcher was? On that team in 1985 that held off the world champion Tigers to take the East pennant and go on and play the Royals in the ALCS, there was a guy named Doyle Alexander who went 17-10 and 10 for Bobby Cox. So it only makes sense that Bobby Cox would bring this guy with him to Atlanta. I mean, he couldn't wait to get him down in Atlanta with him. He knew what he had. And it also explains why the Tigers were so familiar with Doyle Alexander and they knew what he could do. I mean, he had been a divisional thorn in their side for, you know, a couple seasons now. They'd watched Doyle Alexander take the mound against them, and, and the Blue Jays had beaten the Tigers behind this guy. So in 1987, the Tigers and the Braves pulled the trigger on a deadline deal that will send Doyle Alexander to Detroit to help them hold off those very Blue Jays that Bobby Cox had left behind. And the Braves got the right-hander they wanted in John Smoltz, who would eventually be bronzed and Braves blue in the Hall of Fame. And now, like I said, a lot of people remember this deal as like one of those, oof, the Tigers blew that one, man. But that's not even close to the truth here, okay? Who won out on this deal? Everybody but the Blue Jays, okay? I'll tell you that right now. Everybody but the Blue Jays won out on this thing. Now, we all know John Smoltz goes on to be a Hall of Famer, a Cy Young winner, a World Series champ. He even goes on to be the only pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball to win more than 200 games and save more than 150. So did the Braves crush it on their end of this deal? Yes. All day long, yes. You can't deny that. They smoked it. But so did the Tigers. Not many people remember how tight this race actually was between the Tigers and the Blue Jays in 1987. I mean, these teams aren't only battling it out for the division here. They also each have a superstar that year that's battling it out for the AL MVP. Toronto Blue Jays outfielder and DH, George Bell, would hit 308 that year with 47 home runs, 134 RBIs on 188 hits. For the Detroit Tigers, their shortstop Alan Trammell would hit 343 with 28 home runs, 105 RBIs on 205 hits. Now, I have to point out that Trammell also won the Silver Slugger Award for shortstops. George Bell did not win the Silver Slugger Award as he DH'd a lot of the time as well. And Alan Trammell played shortstop every single day. George Bell had the luxury of DHing. Now, we all know George Bell would eventually edge out Alan Trammell in the AL MVP voting and what was one of the closest vote totals ever for that award. George Bell would take 332 votes. Alan Trammell would take 312. But it was the Tigers that would edge out the Toronto Blue Jays by exactly one game to take the AL East pennant and go on to play in the ALCS. By the way, the guy that finished third in the MVP voting that year for the AL, kid named Kirby Puckett for the Minnesota Twins, who the Tigers would face in that ALCS. So how does Doyle Alexander play into all this? Well, I'll tell you. Doyle Alexander was a huge part in the Tigers holding off the Blue Jays by one game. In fact, he's probably single-handedly responsible for bringing the pennant home that year. Now, here's why the Tigers also won on this trade deal. Because they won the pennant. They won the East pennant and went to the ALCS. And Doyle Alexander was perfect down the stretch. And I mean that literally. Once he got to Detroit, Doyle Alexander went 9-0 in 11 starts. 9-0 with a 1.53 ERA. And he finished fourth place in the AL Cy Young voting on 11 starts. He was that dominant when we got him from the Braves. He was that dominant for us down the stretch that season. So it's hard to argue that the Tigers didn't get more than they even bargained for in this deal. I mean, the guy goes 9-0 down the stretch. Didn't lose a game. And a Tiger uniform. Now we all know the Tigers would eventually lose the ALCS to the Twins. But Alexander got the ball in game one. 
and was pitching a great game, going eight innings strong before he finally gave up a double to a kid named Kirby Puckett, who I just told you finished third in the MVP voting that year. And the Twins took the lead in the eighth. Tigers went to the bullpen, and, you know, they never looked back. The Twins never looked back at that point. They ended up beating us four games to one, and the only game that we did win in that series would be would be game three at Tiger Stadium when Pat Sheridan hit a ninth-inning walk-off homer. And I only bring that up to tell you that Pat Sheridan's cousin was our assistant basketball coach in high school, and he told us about it all the time. So there's that. Now, Doyle Alexander's uh, success with us continued into 1988, where he had a real hot start and wound up being elected to his first All-Star game ever, which helped to lead the Tigers on another pennant chase in 1988, which we ended up losing out by one game to the Boston Red Sox. In the final weekend of the season, the Tigers needed to sweep the New York Yankees to be able to take the division, and we did it behind wins from Jack Morris, Doyle Alexander, and Frank Tanana of Catholic Central fame. Now, the Red Sox only needed to win one game out of a four-game stretch against the lowly Indians. The Indians sucked that year, and the Red Sox did exactly that. They pulled off one game out of the four to hold off the Tigers and win the East in 1988. But Doyle Alexander, again, had a great season and helped to lead the Tigers almost to another pennant. And after the 88 run fell short, that window closed on that Tiger team getting back to another World Series. 1989 was not that friendly to anyone on our pitching staff, including Hall of Famer Jack Morris. Doyle Alexander didn't have a very good year, and he ended up retiring at the end of 1989. But this is a guy who pitched 19 seasons in the bigs. He had 194 wins, 174 losses, and a lifetime ERA of 3.76. The guy threw 98 complete games. He was six outs from a perfect game once and three outs from a no-hitter twice. I mean, that's a heck of a career, man. This guy was a good pitcher. And he did more than we bargained for when we made the deal. I mean, that 1989 season that sent this guy into retirement, that wasn't the Tiger team we were used to watching there. I mean, our leading hitters on the team that year were Mike Heath and Keith Moreland. So take that for what it's worth. So Alexander's career comes to an end, but Smoltz is just getting rolling down there with the Atlanta Braves while the Tigers are not able to make a deal with Jack Morris. Now, Jack Morris will eventually leave to go to the Minnesota Twins on a one-year deal worth $3 million that puts him in this rare club they referred to back then, these 12 pitchers that were in the $3 million club. You can believe that. That was a big deal back then, $3 million. But why bring up Jack Morris to the Minnesota Twins? Because it all comes back to John Smoltz and the Braves. The year's 1991 now, okay? Now, the addition of Morris to the Twins has taken the Twins from last place in 1990 to first place in 1991. For the Braves... Bobby Cox's brilliant move to rebuild the Braves as the GM and then slide into the dugout to the managing position has paid off huge, okay? The Braves also went from last place in 1990 to first place in 1991. Now, believe it or not, no team in the history of Major League Baseball had ever gone from worst place to first place before, and now we have two teams that did it in the same year, in the same year. Now, not only that, They would meet in the World Series, guaranteeing that for the first time in league history, a team would go from last place to World Series champs. And Bobby Cox's Braves were doing it behind three of the top starters in the game. One of those starters was one of Bobby Cox's first-round draft picks when he was the GM. We all remember Tom Glavin and his famous circle change. He'd be the Cy Young runaway winner in 1991. The second starter was a young lefty phenom that Cox drafted the very next year after he drafted Glavin. And Detroiters are familiar with this kid's name because he grew up down river in Taylor. And that's Steve Avery. He wound up being the NLCS MVP, who, by the way, on a side note, was my son's little league coach after he retired from playing baseball. And I got to play against him in a couple of summer leagues around the area in Detroit. It was fun. And the third starter that was setting the world on fire for Bobby Cox that year was his famous trade acquisition from 1987. He dealt Doyle Alexander and got himself another Michigander, John Smoltz. Now, here's where the Tigers' longtime ace and the minor leaguer they traded away are forever connected in history in what is known as the greatest Game 7 in World Series history. Of course, the World Series that year went seven games. Both teams had gone from worst to first. Why shouldn't it go all the way to the end of Game 7 and go into extra innings before we crowned a winner? And like I said, the pitching situation for Game 7 in 1991 
had 1987 written all over it and featured a pair of future Hall of Famers. For the Twins, it's former Tiger ace Jack Morris. And for the Braves, it's future Hall of Famer John Smoltz. These two would battle in an epic pitcher's duel that is the greatest pitcher's duel in the history of the World Series. I literally challenge you to tweet me a better one. Please, tweet me a better one. I challenge you. This thing goes 10 innings, and the game ends one to nothing. And these guys were dealing, man. I'm telling you right now, these guys were dealing. Morris got himself into a couple of jams early, but he got out of them. And the Twins finally chased Smoltz in the eighth, but he hadn't given up a run yet. The game was still 0-0, and he had scattered six hits for the Twins. On the other side, Jack Morris puts in what is, in my opinion, disagree with me or don't, the greatest pitching performance in the history of Major League Baseball's World Series, and playoffs for that matter. Now, I'm well aware that Don Larson threw a perfect game in the World Series. I'm well aware of that, but I'll take this one. I'll take this one from Morris because he's got several situations where he's in trouble, got runners on, got to get out of the jam. He gets out of the jam every time. He's pitching under pressure. You know, Larson's pitching under pressure of a perfect game, but, you know, you're pitching in a game where no one's ever reaching base. You're pitching against yourself. You know what I mean? Morris is facing all kinds of adversity, and not to mention he's pitching in the modern era, the modern era of bullpen baseball, guys. And this guy's going to go 10 innings, get himself out of jams, scatter seven hits, and get a 10-inning shutout in Game 7 of the World Series, never getting yanked by the manager in the bullpen era of modern baseball. He was dealing, man. This dude was dealing. The Twins eventually win the game in the bottom of the 10th inning, one to nothing. And when Twins manager Tom Kelly was asked, had he considered taking Jack Morris out at any point, he famously said, no way. Jack sat by himself at the other end of the dugout, and I knew if I went down there to even talk to him, I was going to have to fight him. Now, to bring this six degrees of separation full circle here, Morris would only pitch for the Twins for that one year. He would leave the very next offseason for where? The Toronto Blue Jays, where they would make him the $5 million man. He went on to win the next two World Series in a row as well with the Toronto Blue Jays, making that three World Series in a row for Jack Morris. In 1992, the Blue Jays would beat Bobby Cox, John Smoltz, and the Atlanta Braves, which would lead Bobby Cox to go out and just add one more arm to that stable of starters, a guy named Greg Maddox, and that was that. He would now have assembled the greatest starting rotation in the history of Major League Baseball. And they would finally get John Smoltz that sought-after World Series ring in 1995 as the Atlanta Braves would finally break through and beat the Cleveland Indians. In the nine-season stretch from 1987 to 1995, these four teams accounted for seven trips to the World Series and five World Series championships. But it all started in 1987 with a little deadline trade deal, Doyle Alexander for John Smoltz. And that's our Tiger turn back the clock moment. And the more I dug into this thing, man, the more fascinating it just got to me. All the names, all the championships, and it all revolving around these four teams. I just think that this thing would make an awesome short documentary. This thing's got a 30 for 30 written all over it. I mean, you got interviews with Smoltz and Bobby Cox and, you know, Trammell and Whitaker, Morris, Joe Carter, you know, if you could get the late, great Kirby Puckett. I mean, geez, oh, Pete's, man. This thing's just littered with awesome baseball history, and it would make a killer 30 for 30, I think. Well, that's it for this week's show, guys. Uh, We're ramping up, getting ready, doing a lot of research and diving into our annual NFL Draft episode. That's coming up in two weeks here, the NFL Draft. So we're getting geared up to see what the Lions are going to do, what the Jets are going to do. They're going to sit tight. They're going to take Wilson, whatever. We're going to get into all of that, guys. But that's going to be coming up next week. So tune in for that. It's disagree with me or don't because that's how it works. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time.